people are dying each day. And so for me, being an ally is about action. There's not an expert out there right now, or we wouldn't have it happening, right? We're learning, and we need to learn together. So asking the people what their input is, is key. One of the things that she said is, for the longest time you criminalized us, and now you're trying to medicalize us, could you just please humanize us? Hello and welcome back to Interior Voices, an interior health podcast series where we explore the intersection of health and culture in the workplace, our everyday lives, and patient care. I'm Beth Blue, Communication Support for Aboriginal Health. In episode 15, Sheila Lewis sits down with members of the Aboriginal Mental Wellness and Substance Use Team to discuss interior health's response to the opioid crisis. So thrilled to have all of you here with me. My name is Sheila Lewis. I am practice lead for Aboriginal Mental Wellness. Today we're here discussing the opioid crisis and interior health's journey to supporting Aboriginal partner communities. I would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge that we are on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded Shwetlam territory. I would like to start with a round of introductions so that our listeners know who's with us today, starting with Jeff. I'm Jeff Connors. I'm a social worker with Interior Health and spend a bit of time doing opiate response on a six-month gig. I'm a dad and primarily that's my job, otherwise clinical social worker and prevention practitioner. Thank you. Sherry? I'm Sherry Fitzsimmons. I'm the Aboriginal Opioid Project Manager with Interior Health, and that role involves ensuring enhanced access to opiate agonist treatment, which is daily medication for the treatment of opioid use disorder, uh, medications such as Suboxone or Methadone. I live in Kamloops, and my role is to look after the whole interior region. So I do a little bit of traveling, get out to the rural and Aboriginal communities. And I'm a registered social worker, so I'm glad to be here. Welcome. Hello, I'm Judy Sturm. I'm the Aboriginal Mental Wellness Director with Interior Health, and I'm based in Kamloops as well. I am a mother of two, and my background is in nursing. Thanks. Wonderful, thank you. And I'm Corrine Dolman. I am a practice lead with mental health and substance use. I'm also the regional lead for the overdose response. I came to Interior Health about two and a half years ago, right after the declaration of the public health emergency. So I'm also the mother of two teenage girls and super happy to be here today to talk about this important work. Excellent. Thank you, Corrine. So as I had been sharing with you earlier, I really saw value in discussing Interior Health's journey to supporting Aboriginal partner communities with the opioid crisis. And I noticed in my work of uncovering that journey that Interior Health has in earnest been trying to be responsive to our Aboriginal communities. And I saw this journey starting largely with the secondment of Jeff Connors for six months. And then it, it seemed to move along as you identified, Corrine, that you had started pretty much after the declaration and this has been your work. And then the inclusion and bringing on board Sherry Fitzsimmons 
and then with Judy Sturm participating with the Urban Aboriginal Overdose Steering Committee and as well as we discussed in a previous podcast if you wanted to check out the Aboriginal Mental Wellness Plan in terms of our work supporting our communities in that direction as well so Judy has definitely has quite that vision of, of how that work has been moving forward with interior health so if I may turn it over to Jeff if you could just share with us that process of what happened in your secondment and what was your experience like and what were your learnings in doing that work? Sure. Where it came from was just the recognition of the overrepresentation of people, uh, Indigenous folks, in the opioid crisis. And historically there has been, and I'm sure other folks here can speak to this better than I can, just the challenges, for example, on reserve, off reserve, jurisdictional stuff, all these kind of federal, provincial challenges, right? And so luckily Lori Hisco was really just clear around, off you go, get out to places, meet people, see what you can do. And really the, the plan at that point was, how do I get to every First Nations community twice in six months? You know, in IH West, we're, you know, about 74%, I think, of, of First Nations communities reside for interior health. But they're all different. Like, Tobacco Plains is not the same as Dakotan. And so just understanding the context of those places was really important. And so getting out, having a discussion, working with the First Nations Health, our interior partners, just around how do we deliver, articulate, and help engage communities as well as urban, around harm reduction and opioid issues across the board. And I think uh, it was entering into those discussions and just really learning about the different kind of pieces because harm reduction, I think, historically has had a bad name in many areas and not well understood. And I think that's some of the challenges, not just language, but perception and ideologies around that. But I think it fits really well, my understanding of Indigenous belief systems around caring about our community and those types of things. And so it's really just trying to engage with that and get a better understanding how that plays out. Because again, not only the community is different, but the systems in each area are different as well. It's how things are delivered as far as how do you get agonists out to different areas as well. It's not the same pathway everywhere. I guess for me, the biggest learning is how to understand the different nations and communities. There's this idea of the kind of two-eyed scene. One is around kind of the medical model and some of the things we do there, but there's also the cultural lens and historical traditions that we need to balance out. And so for me, it was really just a great opportunity to learn a tiny bit about that and how to bring that back into the system and see, can our system really adapt to that? Thank you very much for that, Jeff. So Kareem, can you share with us a little bit around your journey with your work? So originally when I came into this role, I was part of Interior House Overdose Emergency Response Center. So there had been a declaration of the emergency and Interior Health had declared its own emergency. So it was a very high level structure, very high level intervention. It was really difficult at that time to understand how the work we were doing was impacting people on the front lines. So I think for me where it really started to evolve and really started to meaningfully incorporate an Aboriginal lens was really with the implementation of your team, Judy, and the Aboriginal Mental Wellness Team and the subcommittee of the Overdose Steering Committee when that was formed. I think we really started to see some meaningful focus. And the key for that was, one, you bringing together the right people. So I think there was good representation of some of the bigger organizations that impact this work, as well as some of the rural areas you also brought into that work. So that's when I started to see the overdose response for interior health really start to better adjust to focusing on meeting some of those needs. And then I think it really started to come together as well with specific project 
coordinators like Sherry. A big part of the work I was involved with early on was the expansion of OAT services across the region, really making sure people had access to these life-saving medications. And when Sherry came into her role, then we were really able to start to look at each community that didn't have access and try and problem solve each one. So I'll let Sherry talk more about that when you get to her. Excellent. Thank you, Kearney. So that brings me around to Sherry Fitzsimmons and your journey as the opioid project manager. So I started last year, about one year ago, and I had to learn a lot about the individual communities and how each community requires a certain service. So as I go into those communities and I learn from them what they need, how close they are to current services that we have, and how they access that service, and if they're open to maybe initiating opiate agonist treatment or methadone and suboxone medications right in their health departments in their communities. As I've journeyed along in the last year, when I go into communities, I'm welcomed and they're willing to share information with me. I share the resources we have and then they're open to initiating new services in their community and and sharing what they have happening already like land-based healing or groups that they're already organizing. So far, I think we're moving along well. We're opening new clinics. Sometimes we're reaching in with telehealth and we're sharing all the opiate agonist treatment services such as harm reduction supplies and take-home naloxone kits or the nasal naloxone that's now free to uh, BC First Nations. Each community is different, so there's ongoing learning, and I've come a long ways just in the last year in this role. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Sherry. And then Judy, if you could share with us. It's been just about a year since our team kind of initiated and I've been in this role. And most of the mental health and substance use work transitioned over from Aboriginal Health to our team around that time. And so that included chairing the subcommittee, which is the Aboriginal Overdose Response Working Group. So it's a subcommittee of the Interior Health Overdose Steering Committee. And when I first started, it was work done in collaboration with First Nations Health Authority. And as Karine mentioned, with the declaration of the emergency, initially, we did a lot of work with First Nations Health Authorities and other provincial health authority with the mandate of First Nations. So my work really came around advocating that uh, there are other Aboriginal populations outside of First Nations individuals. So we have our Métis populations and then we have our non-status off-reserve urban, we call them, population. And knowing that the majority of the overdose events and deaths do happen in our main centres in interior health, so that's places like Kamloops, Kelowna, Penticton and Vernon, it was really trying to engage those partners to also come to the table for us to be understanding what the issues, gaps are and also the opportunities. And for me, I think that's the main focus of my work is there are a lot of opportunities and I think it's important to really understand and the environment, the context, is what Jeff said. So not only of our First Nations on-reserve communities, but also our urban and Métis communities. And so I did meet with the executive directors of Friendship Centres. I've met with Métis Nation BC, really tried to meet within some of the nations, Quetmic Nation or within the Silk Nation, and some of the surrounding First Nations communities too, Kamloops, Kelowna, Penticton, and Vernon. So I think for me, it really highlighted issues, but also the opportunities. And we held a strategic planning session fairly early so in May of last year with our partners to really highlight what is the context
context in each of those spaces and also what are the issues or gaps they know and what do they see as opportunities and so together we came up with a plan and I really want to acknowledge our partnership with First Nations Health Authority because ultimately that's where Sherry's position was funded through so it was a term one-year position and Interior Health I think has been able to see the benefit of having a position like that and so has made the decision to extend that position for another year. So I think Sherry's been able to really identify and we'll put forward some of the recommendations that she's seen in her work, but now has the opportunity to implement potentially in the near future some of those recommendations and also expand some of the work that she's been able to do. Really, it's been a steep learning curve for me to understand the context of opioids. And in part of our discussion, I think that's some of the things I've learned is our communities don't understand some of the medical terminology that we use. So when we use terms like oat, they're like, what are you talking about? Horse feed? What are you talking about? And even harm reduction, it's a new term, a new philosophy. I think like Jeff said, when we can get in there and provide information and education, I haven't had one who really wasn't on board. With that, knowing that again, there's a spectrum there's, you know, from abstinence to harm reduction. And so people can fall in between. So really we're here to meet them where they're at. I feel like that's what Sherry's been able to do is really meet them where they're at and then provide that specific support that their community needs because some are all over harm reduction. They're distributing things and Mm -hmm. others are very much abstinence and you need to start at kind of ground level. Thank you. And thank you to all of you for opening this up in this good way and talking about the journeys. And it helps me segue into the next question. Through this work, what did being an ally mean to you in supporting our partner communities through this crisis? For me, I'm a settler, so I'm not First Nations, I'm not Indigenous, I'm not Métis, not Inuit. So an ally is all I am. I can't really lead the work. That's not my role. I can hold space. But I think as well, representing for me is not just myself and uh, settlers, but as well as interior health. How do we go into places in a good way? How do we, you said, I was around looking at the strengths and what's happening in communities. Too often we go in thinking about the negative pieces. Most people go to health because something's gone wrong. But how do we build on the strengths in each community? They are all different. So really kind of modeling, you know, you look at harm reduction, for example, it's really a non-judgmental kind of approach that everybody's welcome, everybody's here, whoever you are, however you come in, that's okay. But how do we do that and how do I model it from my end? So being an ally for me is just being non-judgmental and supporting folks. Wonderful. Thank you, Jeff. Sherry? So being an ally for me is about working together and supporting each other. So when I I go into a community if I can work alongside someone because they can help me to understand their system and maybe I can support them to navigate a system they're not familiar with. So it's the two of us walking beside each other to serve people better. Beautiful. Thank you, Sherry. Yeah, I think for me, being an ally in this work is such an important issue. People are dying each day. And so for me, being an ally is about action. And it is about trying to influence. I don't necessarily, I'm not in a position that has authority, but to the best of my ability, try to influence a system for a specific population who's overrepresented in both overdose events and deaths. And understanding the literature around improving those outcomes does mean targeted measures. So it's not all about general services, it's open to everyone. It really is about what needs to happen for this particular population to try and improve outcomes. And I think anyone at Interior Health, I really feel like they see the person behind the number, you know? It's very impactful. For our communities, they're a spider web. 
So, you know, there's a lot of marriages and connections through marriage. And so even if a death happens over in the West, it can impact all the way down to our southernmost corner for our communities. And so really for me, it really is putting the person first. And I think that's what drives me to try to be a good ally. I make mistakes, but really I'm committed and passionate and try to work to the best of my ability. Thank you, Judy and Corrine. Well, I think my journey as an ally really was sort of ignited in my early years in social work and education and understanding the history and the impacts on community. And really, for me, that just resonated in terms of wanting to be curious, to understand. And that's how I still try and approach the work is I'm not in any way an expert. I'm even not always sure that I'm the best ally that I could be, but I try and listen and try and understand and then find ways to support and bring people together. But I think it can be challenging for sure. I think there's lots of fear around making mistakes. I often fear repeating the patterns of history. I think even going into some of these communities as a settler, as a white man, how do we ensure that we don't repeat the damages of the past? And so I carry a lot of that. So, you know, I'm often very tentative in the work that I do, really rely on colleagues like yourself and Judy to really help guide that work. But I think just trying to stay curious and always be rooted in, in history and remembering, keeping that forefront in the decisions that we make and always evaluating, you know, are we creating better space? Thank you very much for that. And, and also thank you for touching on harm reduction, the term itself, and how it's not always been uh, viewed as a positive practice or not an understood practice, or maybe one that we don't have language for in some of our nations or communities. And have seen First Nations Health Authority work towards making that bridge and sharing from a First Nations lens that harm reduction actually has been with our nation since time immemorial. It's our natural way of being. It's just not the language, harm reduction is not the language that a lot of our nations have applied to that way of being. And so FNHA has actually, through Len Pierre, it provided an example for nations to look to of identifying their practices. And I will link it for those who are listening on the podcast. Len Pierre was able to demonstrate through his territory's land-based knowledge four perspectives, four pillars that lend to harm reduction principles. And that has really set a, a template where FNHA has also gone further to support other nations in this identification process through two initiatives really is the communities to communities dialogue. So really encouraging communities to come together, share their different lenses of healing and support and sense of belonging and identify through their territory knowledge, what are their principles. And then the other training is the not just naloxone training as well. And then also just giving a nod to not everybody knows what oat is. Exactly, is this horse feed? Am I having it for breakfast? <laughs> what is oat? And Sherry and I have talked about this, the Tanaha Nation, is going to be hosting in collaboration with a few of us partners, uh, rural and remote 
harm reduction conference and Sherry had been invited to present on her work with mapping and navigation of oat resources or opioid agonist treatment resources. So all of this comes around to my question of what does cultural safety and humility mean to you? Jeff? And so for me, you know, when I think about cultural safety is around, I think it's partly around come as you are and how do we meet in the middle of whatever that is. I, I work from a cultural lens and so I think about culture as not just nations or communities, but families all have their own culture as well that they develop and grow up in. And so some folks have this pan-indigenous idea that everyone's all the same. So just understanding that kind of piece. And as well as humility, just understanding that realistically, I probably never will know everything. Actually, I know I won't. <laughs> so, so just being aware of that, because I think sometimes we have this Western lens is that you have to be an expert. You go through all the school and you got to come in as if you're a hot shot or have answers. And Chris said, we're going to make mistakes. And I know I'm going to make mistakes. I just hope they're little ones. That's all. And that I've built up enough relationship and trust that people will school me on it and help me learn. Fantastic. Thank you. I think of cultural safety as people feeling safe, just like you said. I mean, if you start to use a language that people, they don't understand, if they feel safe, they'll say, just a minute, what do you mean by that? So I guess cultural safety is everyone being treated respectfully and feeling safe. And when I'm working with someone, if I'm working in a culturally safe way, that person feels comfortable with me. That's an important thing in our work, is being humble and understanding that if we knew how to solve this overdose crisis, we would. We have to realize we're learning as we go along and we're trying our best, but there's not an expert out there right now, or we wouldn't have it happening, right? We're learning and we need to learn together. So asking the people what their input is, is key. Fantastic. Thank you. And Judy? Um, So cultural safety and humility for me, and I think I'll just kind of go off of what you said. For the role that I am in, there's different perspectives, right? So I'm looking at trying to improve cultural safety and humility around staff, programs. But if I look at it personally, I do identify as Aboriginal, as Indigenous, so both First Nations and Métis. And I'm learning myself. So I'm a born and bred medical professional. I started in nursing. I myself am guilty of being culturally unsafe. And that's not just to Aboriginal people, that's even to other ethnicities, Caucasian. And so I'm learning myself. So for me, it comes back to cultural safety will be decided by the person, which is kind of what I think you said. So I'm on my own journey, as, as Jeff said. I don't ever think I will be an expert. And I think for us, what I like to come back to is just start. Mm-hmm. And it does start with that self-reflection piece. And it does also start with acknowledging that you aren't perfect. You're going to make mistakes. And I've made my own mistakes. And every person is at a different place. And that's why, to me, it comes back to being patient, family, community centered is kind of what you said Sherry following the lead of of those because every person has had different experiences it's having that emotional intelligence or awareness but also that self-reflection and that you're taking the initiative to be learning to me that comes down to relationship and you got to show up that's how you're gonna learn so I can learn some things through a book an online webinar but that's not that relationship places that I'm still learning and I still think I may be unsafe is around the person-centered language right Mm -hmm. you know I grew up using terms that really are not helpful these days where it re-stigmatizes people in substance use 
so things like oh well they're just addicted or you know instead of acknowledging again they're a person all people are good people and that these illnesses are no different than things like diabetes and those sorts of things and we never would speak about individuals that have other medical conditions in, in a similar fashion. It's a lot of blame being put on this population. And so that's an area that I'm really trying to grow and learn. So I think just to reiterate some of what's already been said, hoping to provide information and support to guide the people that we work with, but not to come in as the expert. So I think for me, humility is the, the biggest piece that I try and keep forefront in in the work. And thank you for touching on the person-centered language. We're still mired in that work of trying to transform our language, which then transforms our relationships and communicates to a greater public and hopefully the public that we really need to be targeting in this opioid crisis, which, and please for the experts in the room, correct me, but really it's males between the ages 30 and 50 who primarily are in the trades, most certainly employed, housed, families, all of the pieces that would prevent them from coming to our supervised consumption sites or our overdose prevention sites because of the fear of what they would lose by the visibility of admitting that I have an opioid use disorder. And so our language and transforming our language will hopefully unpack some of those pieces where we can go to a person who uses substances, a person who experiences homelessness, all of those pieces. And I think, you know, the experts in the field are still on that journey as well because it has been quite a part of our language. And the opioid crisis, I would argue, is putting our feet to the fire to transform now rather than keeping it in our meeting circles and talking about it. It's saying, no, 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 no. We need to en masse transform. And so just going as we're think, winding down in this, I think some people would be curious about your work and how could I do this salubrious work with them? What was your journey? If someone was curious and was like, you know, wants to start laying down the groundwork to engaging in this kind of work, what advice would you offer? You know, we just have to sometimes look at the world a different way not just from our perspective. And I think that that is kind of the key to any type of work. If we can look at it from the people we're serving's perception, right? Not from ours, and listen to them. Because sometimes even in this work, when you move up, you forget what is needed at the front line, and that's the people we're serving. Fantastic, thank you. One, I think you need to do some self-reflection, and I know we've moved away from the word competency, so cultural competency, but I always feel there is a piece. So it's not that you're checking it off and, oh, great, here's my certificate, now I'm competent. But you can learn how many nations there are, what First Nations communities are around you, what's the Métis population, like is there a Métis chartered community in your area? When you talk about the urban population and friendship centres, you know, there's other Aboriginal organisations in some communities across interior health. So to me, there is some kind of basic learning. I know sometimes I'm guilty of waiting for an invitation. There's a lot of open community events. Powwows are a good example as a starting place to see a little bit about the culture. As Jeff said, not the pan-Indigenous view. You get a sense of that even within powwows, and that's more First Nations focused. And I think organizations, they're public spaces. Open the door, walk in, say, you know what, 
I don't know a lot about this. So I'm thinking that we're here in Kamloops today. So there's a friendship center. There's a Métis organization that's just gorgeous. White Buffalo, you know, is another Aboriginal organization. And then we have First Nations communities and, you know, fairly close proximity here as well. If you really are struggling, I would come back to, again, the Aboriginal Mental Wellness Team, Aboriginal Health at Interior Health. Our places you could come and ask. You know, from our perspective, we really try to keep it as a safe space because people are on different places in that journey. And so we don't want people to feel uncomfortable to ask a question. We really are here open to try and help you with whatever question you come with. Just to add, I think the most important thing for people considering working with Aboriginal communities is to know your history. So I think that would be what I would suggest is that people take the time to understand this country's history with Indigenous peoples and take the time to learn about the the land and the area that you are, cultures in the area that you reside. I think I would just suggest asking lots of questions and and getting information i think is probably the most important piece of that fantastic thank you also there's a lot of knowledge out there in the ways that we're still struggling through how to have an equitable relationship with our first nations our metis and our inuit and those communities still continue to experience ongoing violence and being represented disproportionately in so many different areas beyond health in our justice system in our child welfare system and so to that that it, the history isn't history it, it's still ongoing and so we still have work and so being open to changing our national myths our stigmas our understanding and that we can still have pride in Canada because I think individuals when they hear that you know we need to get to a place of acknowledging the history in the current context they immediately go to that knee jerk of I'm going to lose that sense of pride of the Canada that I have and I would offer up we have an awesome country and I think it will be made even that much more awesome once we get to that place of a full acknowledgement of of history and current context I think Canada would be that much more brilliant so that I would offer that up to people who are who are a little afraid of losing their national pride is is we're actually just making Canada that much more awesome. I just wanted to build on what we were talking about earlier around the person-centered language with Mm. people who use substances. And what really resonated for me was a woman who spoke at the Overdose Knowledge Conference in Vancouver, and she's a person with lived experience and now is working in healthcare. And she she was so fantastic to listen to, but one of the things that she said is, for the longest time you criminalized us, and now you're trying to medicalize us, could you just please humanize us? Nice. That really resonated nice. for me because I think we are we are not criminalizing as much anymore, but we are sure medicalizing mm-hmm. this overdose crisis. And I think it is important to remember to humanize it and that, you know, people who have challenges of substance use dependency are people and it is a continuum and they are fathers and mothers and sisters and sons and, you know, many are men in the trades that are housed and employed, but as the condition progresses, many of those people are at risk of losing their jobs and their Mm -hmm. homes. Mm -hmm. That person is actually not tremendously different 
different from the person who now does not have a home. And that's what I would like people to see is the continuum Mm -hmm. and the life experiences that move people on that continuum. And if I've learned anything from people with substance use challenges is just the level of trauma that people have experienced that moves them further into dependency on substances and away from wellness and health. And that's really what it's all about, right, is disconnection from people and pain and trying to soothe that pain. But each and every one is a person that is valued. Thank you for that. Also, there's another reality that en masse we're, we are going to have to confront, and that's that some of our people who are substance users will be lifelong substance users. And allow them to make their own decisions on how they might use what we have to offer. We're not offering them something so that they will behave in a way we want. We're offering them something to use it in the way that helps them and give them the respect that they can make that decision. Yes. Bringing dignity back. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing your time, your expertise, and your journey. And that's Interior Health's journey to supporting our Aboriginal partner communities during the opioid crisis. Thank you for listening to episode 15 of Interior Voices. Visit our website at interiorhealth.ca slash interiorvoices for links to additional information about Aboriginal mental wellness and Interior Health's response to the opioid crisis. Please join us again on August 6th when the opioid crisis conversation continues. If you have questions or comments about today's episode, you can email us at interiorvoices at interiorhealth.ca. We'd love to hear from you. language to I know, I super frilious what was it salubrious oh, salubrious that yes. sounds like something anyone who knows me knows i uh, i use that one yeah. a lot yeah yeah, yeah.